Ooh, Carmen, what you reading? I be hearing you on that little podcast and stuff, girl. You know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more. But I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth and then look out. Because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. So I did open my mouth. And you know, I did scream. And when I demanded what I was supposed to have and what I was entitled to, they still would not give it to me. So then they thought they could smear me. And the best way to do that was to call me a communist. And you know, too, what that meant. Those were dreaded words in those days. And I want to tell you also that I was hounded by the government agencies in America. And there was never one ounce of proof that I was a communist. But they were mad. They were mad because I told the truth. And the truth was that all I wanted was a cup of coffee. But I wanted that cup of coffee where I wanted to drink it. And I had the money to pay for it. So why shouldn't I have it where I wanted it? That's from Josephine Baker's speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. Hey everyone, welcome to an episode of What You Reading, this series. Today's segment features guests from around the country reading excerpts from works of Black literature that they favor or pieces that have moved them or even shaped their level of consciousness. It has taken me time to put this episode together, which originally started as a tribute to Black authorship and the legacy of Black writers. I have sat virtually talking with each participant as I do with everyone who joins me on here prior to their recordings. But in this case, I sat with some for a few minutes and others for hours. I began recording with folks who all, in this case, love literature, although they don't testify as writers themselves. I've been putting together this episode for maybe the past two odd weeks. And while I'm certain that this episode still pays homage and tribute to the ones before us, I realize that it is airing at a time when literature is widely being regarded as a form of social activism in America and across the world. I feel comfortable, however, to say that most, if not all, the readers and artists that have spoken on this podcast, including myself, have believed long before the necessary public protests have occurred and increase that literature is a form of social activism, that that's exactly what the Black arts is. I stand in support, of course, as a Black woman, as a Black writer, as a Black scholar, as a Black daughter, in support of all Black lives. We have always mattered. I began the first episode of this series podcast a month ago saying that our words, our literature in every form have always mattered and I continue to believe that. You have heard from Black artists and today you'll hear from a few Black scholars. Some of these works were written over decades ago by Black writers who wrote about systemic racism and oppression that we faced in America and those who dared to reimagine this world and dismantle hierarchy 
and oppressive systems. While others whose work we acknowledge are black writers from this decade, who educate us and encourage our communities to be self-aware, or they brought in the written tradition of black sci-fi. It's definitely difficult to create in a time like this and make space for this conversation, but it's essential to remember that our voices matter and everything that is being read from today and the four episodes prior is proof of that. This part is extremely difficult for me and extremely emotional for me because we have to say their names, right? Right now it's Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Atiana Jefferson, Kayla Moore, and it was Nia Wilson, Sandra Bland, Erica Garner, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Oscar Grant, Marielle Franco, Darren Seals, and so many other names that have become hashtags and many more whose names we haven't even recognized in hashtags whose lives were taken due to white supremacist and a failed judicial system. I'm here because I'm not letting up in this fight. I'm going forward with putting this podcast out because I know of its relevance. And I'm hoping that we can find joy or something in our artistry and uplift our communities and praise the ones who came before us and listen to each other. I didn't create this podcast to make light conversation. I created it with change in mind. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Heidi Lovett. And I am the person who is going to uh, micromanage Carmen A.M. Wong until she becomes Dr. Wong. (laughs) We are currently and happily have published a research article on the effects of COVID-19 in higher education, and we look forward to sharing that link with everyone. Uh, My social media handle on Twitter is at doc, D-O-C underscore Heidi, H-E-I-D-I. And the book I chose is called Recharge, a Self-Awareness Approach to Goal Achievement by Dr. Kelly M. Dixon. Part one is entitled Self-Awareness. What does it mean to be self-aware? Well, let's break it down. Self refers to person's state of being, which makes that person unique compared to others. Awareness refers to perception of a person, place, or thing. Therefore, to be self-aware means the person has a perception of self that is unique to his or her existence. Self-forgiveness, you have the right to be kind to yourself. You have your bad and good days. However, you cannot beat yourself up about it. Forgiving others is hard. Forgiving yourself is harder. We are our own worst critics. I am sure you have heard that line before. It is without a doubt true. We are human and we must give ourselves permission to be just that, an imperfect human. When we forgive ourselves, we develop compassion for ourselves. And that is the secret ingredient for a more meaningful life. 
Self-reward. There is nothing like accomplishing something and treating yourself for the hard work and commitment you put into doing that. You do not have to wait on others to celebrate you. Learn to celebrate your own self. You know what you like. Treat yourself because you deserve it. Remember this hard truth. Many people will celebrate you in public and curse you in private. Self-love. At some point in your life, you have to protect yourself. You must come first. Self-love can be difficult. When you choose you, others may see it as being selfish. Well, don't mind that. It just means you need to be intentional about the boundaries you set with people. Loving yourself enables you to be mindful of your wants and needs. When you learn to love yourself, flaws and all, it will attract the right people in your life. The right people will honor your self-love. Your self-love will come with self-confidence, and it sure looks good on you. Self-worth. It all comes down to this, knowing your worth. As stated before, you deserve the best there is in life. However, you have to believe that for yourself. You have to acknowledge your existence in this world and why you are of priceless value. You belong simply because there is only one you. The potential within you is worthy of respect from others and most importantly, from you. And that's from Recharge, a self-awareness approach to goal achievement by Dr. Kelly M. Dixon. Hey guys, my name is Tiara and I am currently working as a financial analyst at NBC Universal. But in addition to that, I am the founder of 518 Rebirth, which is an organization that provides tips and strategies that not only help millennials identify gifts, passions, and talents, but also um, encourages them to boldly and successfully walk in the purpose that God has called them to fulfill. Um, and so today I will be reading a snippet from Elaine Walter Ross, New York Times bestseller, More Than Enough, which is a novel about coming into your own and embracing who you are. And so here we go. If we aren't vigilant, we can move through our entire lives feeling smaller than we actually are. By playing it safe, by unconsciously giving away our power, by dimming our radiance, by not recognizing there is always so much more waiting for us on the other side of fear. But when we are brave enough to go there, to grab what we want, to tap into who we are, damn, it feels so good. And now for the conclusion, just the beginning. No matter how far a person can go, the horizon is still way beyond you. Zora Neale Hurston, their eyes were watching God. Our lives are a series of dreams realized. We don't say that enough. Instead, we repeatedly ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if one answer, one dream, one career path can define you throughout your whole life. The truth is job titles are temporary, but purpose is infinite. There are no destinations, no happily ever afters in real life, no glossy pots of gold at the end of the rainbow. There are only new beginnings. Just as you reach your first summit, you'll find a new horizon awaits. One with new mountains to climb, new peaks and valleys to wander across. Trust that life will continue molding you, challenging you, and readying you for your next adventure. But only you can choose to walk away 
from what no longer serves you, to leave what you've already conquered, and to step boldly into what's next. When you find yourself existing in the space between dreams realized, parts of you will feel too big for where you are, while other parts of you will feel too small for where you're going. But go anyway. Don't wait. Do not wonder if you can. Do not ask for permission. When you get lost, it's okay to stop, to look up, to look within for the answers. They're always there. And when the world tells you to shrink, expand. Remember, you have done enough. You are enough. You were born enough. The world is waiting on you. Thanks, guys. And please follow me at 518rebirth for your daily inspirations and motivations. Love y'all. I purposely chose to share those readings first because they talk about manifesting goals and dreams, celebrating ourselves and knowing love. I think that right now that is extremely crucial because we are a motivating force and we need to know that. Um, You know, I mentioned literature being activism, social and political commentary, but it's also a form of affirmation and a transferring of energies. So I share those pieces first that I thought worked together across those themes of love and showcasing that amongst our community and positivity. Um, And as I was re-listening to this entire podcast, I realized that, you know, this is some heavy stuff. And I mean heavy in the sense that we begin to approach writers who speak their truths um, and are very unapologetic about what it means to dismantle or uh, rearrange ourselves in this system. And I think the first half helps us prepare to engage with the works of resistance and literary resistance that we will tend to in this second portion at its core. Um, Fun fact, I moved to New Orleans, yes, for graduate school, but also because I am really inspired by Zora Neale Hurston and her investment to folklore and oral storytelling from the mouths of Black Southerners, which to me is extremely powerful and, of course, one of the reasons why she didn't receive the recognition she deserved while she was alive and, you know, was later brought to the African-American literary canon um, due to Alice Walker. And to me, there's something that is so important about the daringness of her work, right, as well as her desire to do the work even if no one is listening. So I hope that This prepares us as we get into the second portion of this podcast, which is not nearly halfway finished. I say that there are some instances where the recordings aren't the best quality. Again, this is recorded in my bedroom during quarantine over the phone. And to me, that's just a real marker of where we're at right now environmentally as well. Um, But I promise you, I promise you, even in those moments, you're gonna be like, whoa, what book is is that? What are they reading from? I promise you, I did not leave anything to chance in this episode. I am Sadia Malcolm. I am a bison forever. I am um, a PhD student in sociology, uh, studying Black girlhood. um, And 
I am going to be sharing first from um, a poem by Lucille Clifton. Um, Won't you celebrate with me? Um, This poem is really important to me because it came to me. I think I might have read it like when I was younger. But when I started graduate school, I mean, my first year was terrible. Like I hated it. I literally didn't think I was going to live beyond that year. And so I printed out um, a copy of Won't You Celebrate With Me, and it's in my laptop case. So whenever I open it up, whether I'm reading it um, mindfully or subconsciously, it's there. Um, And it's juxtaposed to a picture of my niece. Um, And so I'll start with Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton. (sighs) Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up. Here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. So that was Lucille Clifton. Uh, And then one of my very favorite poetry books that I have right now um, is Questions for Ada by, let's see if I can say her name right, Ijoma Umebinyo. I don't know if I said the last name right, (laughs) Um, but I hope I did. Um, and I love this text because um, it was gifted to me by one of my close friends, my Black woman scholar friends. Um, and I remember it came to me as like a bomb. Like, you know, I, I really needed it in my life at the time. And I remember the first night I sat up reading it. And I mean, when I tell you I sat up reading, it, I sat up and I read and I cried. I remember I was ugly crying in my bed about two o'clock in the morning. I had to text her like, girl. Is this what you was waiting for me to get to? Here's to the security guards who maybe had a degree in another land. Here's to the manicurist who had to leave her family to come here, painting the nails, scrubbing the feet of strangers. Here's to the janitors who don't even understand English yet work hard despite it all. Here's to the fast food workers who work hard to see their family smile. Here's to the laundryman at the Marriott who told me with the sparkle in his eyes how he was an engineer in Peru. Here's to the bus driver, the Turkish Sufi who almost danced when I quoted Rumi. Here's to the harvesters who live in fear of being deported for coming here to open the road for their future generation. Here's to the taxi drivers from Nigeria, Ghana, Egypt, and India who gossip among themselves. Here's to them waking up at 4 a.m., calling home to hear the voices of their loved ones. Here's to their children, to their children who, despite it all, become artists, writers, teachers, doctors, lawyers, activists, and rebels. Here's to international money transfers for never forgetting home. Here's to their children who carry the heartbeats of their motherland and even in sleep speak with pride about their fathers. Keep on. And there is one more that I want to share from this text, but I definitely recommend this for Black women. I mean, it it really, I mean, 
is a healing read. Uh, let's see. Okay, I have this one that means a lot to me um, because this is the one that really shook me up that night. Um, it's called 26, uh, also from Questions for Ada. Um, it says, three days after you turned 26, you picked up the phone to hear her speak. Your voice is laced with tiredness, the kind that grows weary of men who only come to take. The kind of tiredness you spend three days on the bed wishing away. The kind that kneels on the floor, screaming for help without voicing a word. Three days after you turn 26, your Igbo mother, with her voice squeezing into the telephone, tells you about your birth. You listen to her call you her miracle child. You try not to break down. Somehow, she knows. She says softly, my daughter, it will hurt. It will hurt, but you will be okay. Inogo? Gently, you suck your pride and begin to shake as you cry. You know for the first time in your life, you know even your mother has been here before. You know her voice has been stretched. You know that before your father, there was a man who broke her so badly. Her sisters gathered, sucking their teeth, healing her with words, feeding her spoonfuls of love. You slowly bathe yourself. Today, you will apply your red lipstick without calling out his name. Today, you will not feed your pillow more tears. Today, you will win. Mm. Hello, my name is Maisha Carter. I'm a recent graduate of 2020 from University of West Georgia with a BA in English and a minor in Spanish. I'm on the road to attend law school in the fall at Georgia State University. And I'm excited to be on this podcast today because growing up, I never had the formal representation in reading as a huge fan of fantasy and sci-fi fiction. Um, I didn't realize at the time how I was subconsciously affected by this. When I was a, a child and as a young black writer, I found myself writing female leads who were white with blue, green, light brown eyes and long flowing blonde and brown hair. But those characters didn't really represent me. And it wasn't until I was older and within these past few years where I started seeing representation that I started to start writing characters who are more like me, who represent me and black girls all around in fantasy and sci-fi fiction. So within these past few years, I have made it an intentional effort to actively search out black authors to read their stories. And I found a great one that I'm actually reading right now. It's called The Everlasting Rose. It's the second book within the Bell series and it's written by Danielle Clayton. And I'm just gonna read a little bit on that. The building is a gift box made of glass panels trimmed with ribbons of gold. Silk screens of the fashion minister's freckled face hang from the high ceiling interspersed with portraits of gowns displaying their various wonders. The room's window walls give a full view of Cardinal 
Carondelet from every vantage point. The blue domed buildings glimmer like cream tarts frosted with blueberry glaze. Day lanterns zip overhead carrying voice boxes and heat lanterns glow like newborn stars. Gather around everyone. The presentation will start in a quarter of an hourglass. A woman announces through the voice boxes. The crowd takes out ear trumpets and eye scopes anticipating the start of the show. Sweet fenders slither through the masses wearing garments that display their treats. A woman dons a porcelain teapot shaped hat and pours the steaming liquid through her spout into cups. Another wears a dress that illuminates like an oven complete with spice pies and bourbon tarts. A little boy pushes macarons from his top hat to be caught and consumed. A tall man has a billowing waistcoat from which he extracts peppermint bark, chocolate buttons, and caramel sticks. Peach post balloons deliver glasses of champagne to eager, awaiting hands. The teacup dragons squirm as the scents tickle their noses. I tighten my waist sash, pulling them closer, hoping the warmth and heat of my body lulls them to sleep despite the chattering noises of the cavernous room. The fashion minister's well-dressed team of dandies march through side doors and yank thick red curtains along the walls and ceilings. The view of the city and the sky above disappears. Night lanterns are extinguished, replaced by sparklers. Attendants ease the spectators away from the center of the room and form the crowd into a perfect circle. Ladies, gentle ladies, gentlemen, and gentlefolk of the great Spice Owls, this is the first stop of this glorious world tour. Prepare yourself for the greatest fashion minister to ever serve the glorious kingdom of Orleans, the one and only royal minister, Gustave Dupont. Thank you. My name is Joel Rohn. I'm a PhD student in English at the University of Chicago, also a Howard graduate, also a Marshall Scholar. And my Twitter handle is Hugh Blackman. It's H-U-G-H underscore B-L-A-K-M-A-N. Something you should know about me that I think will kind of uh, give some guidance into my interest in what I'm going to read is that um, I'm really interested um, in historical representation in literature and literary studies. Um, I, I kind of like arrived at that interest thinking about uh, this, what a lot of literary scholars have indicated as something like a pre-civil rights nostalgia that characterizes a lot of literary production um, in the post-civil rights. And then what some people think of as a post-post civil rights movement. So in the 70s, there are novels, um, you know, kind of like Ernest Gaines, uh, Miss Jane Pittman uh, being a case in point that kind of are nostalgic for the 60s, like it's a decade. And then there are novels like later on, um, again, Ernest Gaines, A Lesson Before Dying, and and that he writes in the 90s, um, that kind of like are really interested in these kind of like... um, uh, these like civil rights kind of like leader figures. And of course, there's a whole lot of kind of heteronormative and patriarchal um, kind of trouble with this representation. But that's kind of the point in working through this kind of like nostalgic moment and this form of um, what I'd like to think of as the Black American historical novel. Um, so it's what I'm going to read from today is James Baldwin's Go Total Mountain which he published in 1952. 
I'm not sure that I'd quite call this historical novel because usually when I'm thinking about the genre of the historical novel, we're thinking about books that are very directly and explicitly historicizing, historicizing distinct moments in time, political events, sea changes in political and social states of affairs. Um, but James Baldwin's Go Talent on the Mountain isn't as interested in those kind of super nominal um, kind of historical political changes. It's really interested in the domestic space, um, in the home, in the familial. There's a lot of allusion to past moments, a lot of um, analepsies that are kind of placed throughout the novel. And that's kind of like as far as historical representation goes. Um, but my interest with this book is in a couple of passages that have to deal with um, John's character. Um, John, a lot of people think is a representative or stand-in for James Baldwin because it's a, um, to a lot of people, it's a autobiographical fiction. Um, so it has a lot to do with James Baldwin's childhood growing up in a Pentecostal black church in New York. Um, but of course, a lot of the cultural kind of like folkways and norms, um, as long as his uh, kind of like lineage and family genealogy um, is descended from the American South. So he's very much uh, both John, uh, the representative for Baldwin, Baldwin himself, uh, most of the uh, people and culture in the representative of the book are part of and products of the Great Migration. So we're dealing with a lot of people that will kind of like sound off a lot of like Southern um, norms and folkways, but they're geographically placed like in a very uh, disadvantaged, impoverished, um, racially uh, troublesome social scene in New York um, that's, that's uh, around like the mid-century. So what I'm interested with this passage is going to be with the way that, um, unlike a lot of approaches to racial violence and racial trauma, uh, the, the history of slavery um, that comes up in a lot of uh, religious discourse, um, the passages I'm going to read from actually do a really um, interesting and, um, you know, something that you don't really see in a lot of other um, religious approaches to like racial violence, which is he has a vision. He's on something called like the, the threshing floor. A lot of people call the altar in, uh, in churches or, or in church services. And so he has a vision um, that he echoes a lot from uh, the uh, John, like the apostle. And so he's going to see a number of what appear to be black American people whose injuries we're talking about like blood and whips and chains and death that are not made right, that are uh, not, there's no justice for them in the hereafter. So pretty much he's going to be in a place that's like something like a supernatural space, something like heaven, but not quite that, where he's able to take a look at those people who in traditional religious narratives will have right, had their suffering, the violence and injustice committed against them made right in the hereafter, but 
the trauma and the violence, injury, bodily damage are do not go away in the supernatural space and time. Um, and so I'll read here and then maybe it'll become a little more clear what I mean. So then there began to flood John's soul, the waters of despair. Love is as strong as death, as deep as the grave. But love, which had perhaps like benevolent monarch, swelled the population of his neighboring kingdom. Death had not himself descended. They owed him no allegiance here. Here there was no speech or language and there was no love. No one to say, you are beautiful, John. No one to forgive him, no matter what his sin. No one to heal him and lift him up. No one. Father and mother looked backward. Roy was bloody. Elijah was not here. Then the darkness began to murmur, a terrible sound, and John's ears trembled. And this murmur that filled the grave like a thousand rings beating on the air, he recognized the sound that he had always heard. He began, for terror, to weep and moan, and the sound was swallowed up, and yet was magnified by the echoes that filled the darkness. This sound had filled John's life, so it now seemed, from the moment he had first drawn breath. He had heard it everywhere, in prayer and in daily speech, and wherever the saints were gathered, and in the unbelieving streets. It was in his father's anger, and in his mother's calm insistence, and in the vehement mockery of his aunt, it had rung so oddly in Roy's voice this afternoon, and when Elijah played the piano, it was there. It was in the beat and jangle of Sister McCandless's tambourine. It was in the very cadence of her testimony, and invested that testimony with a matchless, unimpeachable authority. Yes, he had heard it all his life, but it was only now that his ears were open to the sound that came from darkness that could only come from darkness, that yet bore such sure witness to the glory of the light. And now, in his moaning, and so far from any help, he heard it in himself. It rose from his bleeding, his cracked open heart. It was a sound of rage and weeping which filled the grave, rage and weeping from time set free, but bound now in eternity, rage that had no language, weeping with no voice, which yet spoke now to John's startled soul, of boundless melancholy, of the bitterest patience in the longest night, of the deepest water, the strongest chains, the most cruel lash, of humility most wretched, the dungeon most absolute, of love's bed defiled, and birth dishonored, and most bloody, unspeakable, sudden death. Yes, the darkness hummed with murder, the body in the water, the body in the fire, the body on the tree, John looked down the line of these armies of darkness, army upon army, and his soul whispered, Who are these? Who were they? And wondered, Where shall I go? There was no answer. There was no help or healing in the grave. No answer in the darkness. No speech from all that company. They looked backward, and John looked back, seeing no deliverance. I, John, saw the future, way up in the middle of the air. Were the lash, the dungeon, and the night for him, and the sea for him, and the grave for him? I, John, saw a number, way in the middle of the air. And he struggled, to, he struggled to flee out of his darkness, out of this company, into the land of the living, so high, so far away. Fear was upon him, a more deadly fear than he had ever known, 
as he turned and turned in the darkness, as he moaned and stumbled and crawled through darkness, finding no hand, no voice, finding no door. Who were these? Who were they? They were the despised and rejected, the wretched and the spat upon, the earth's offscoring, and he was in their company, and they should swallow up his soul. The stripes they had endured would scar his back. Their punishment would be his, their portion his, his, their humiliation, anguish, chains, their dungeon his, their death his. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. So this is a vision that John kind of moves in and out of while he's on the threshing floor. So I'm going to skip through some of the description of his laying there and move on to kind of the, uh, the culmination um, of this vision. There came to him again the communion service at which Elijah had knelt at his father's feet. Now this service was in a great high room, a room made golden by the light of the sun. And the room was filled with a multitude of people, all in long white robes, the women with covered heads. They sat at a long, bare wooden table. They broke at this table flat and salted bread, which was the body of the Lord, and drank from a heavy silver cup the scarlet wine of his blood. Then he saw that they were barefoot, and that their feet were stained with the same blood. And a sound of weeping filled the room as they broke the bread and drank the wine. Then they rose to come together over a great basin filled with water, and they divided into four groups, two of women and two of men. They began, woman before woman and man before man, to wash each other's feet. But the blood would not wash off. Many washings only turned the crystal water red. And someone cried, have you been to the river? Then John saw the river, and the multitude was there. And now they had undergone a change. Their robes were ragged and stained with the road they had traveled and stained with unholy blood. The robes of some barely covered their nakedness, and some indeed were naked. And some stumbled on the smooth stones at the river's edge, for they were blind. And some crawled to the terrible wailing, for they were lame. Some did not cease to pluck at their flesh, which was rotten with running sores. All struggled to get to the river. In a dreadful hardness of heart, the strong struck down the weak, the ragged sped on the naked, the naked cursed the blind, the blind crawled over the lame, and someone cried, Sinner, do you love my Lord? I, every time I read this passage and come back to it, it just calls back to me uh, a line from Kendrick Lamar's Damn album, uh, What Happens on Earth Stays on Earth. And I just really love what Baldwin does here with attending to violence in the way that, indeed, it can't ever really be made right. And so just thinking so much about the protests that hap- they are happening in Chicago and in Minnesota and Los Angeles and New York, um, that are so rational and so justified and so necessary. Just reading Baldwin at this time seems so important for the moment in attending to violence and enacting justice. And that's just the way that Baldwin kind of resonates for me here is that justice, right? In so much of traditional religious thinking is to put off, be put off in hereafter. So many people contribute to this myth of redemptive suffering, where right and justice that you suffer here in the present. You might not see justice now, but it's supposed to come to you in the great beyond. But I just think that this Baldwin passage and, and 
uh, almost the whole of Latoto on the mountain seems like to insist uh, that their justice can't be put off, that wrongs won't be made right and hereafter, and that justice has to be enacted now. There's an urgency and a need and an attention um, that just resonates and I find so pro- profound and so powerful um, each time I return, return to James Baldwin here. Hey, y'all. My name is Julian Lewis. Um, I'm Carmen's roommate. Um, and just to give a little background about myself, I am a socialist teacher in New Orleans. I'm actually entering my fifth year of teaching. I'm also a master's student at Xavier University of Louisiana. I'm getting two masters, one in educational leadership and one in curriculum and instruction. So the first book I'm going to read is Men We Reaped, and it's by Jasmine Ward. I love this book because, like Jasmine, uh, my brother was murdered when I was younger, right after I graduated from Howard. Um, and I think the book, in the book, Jasmine talks about four different black men who were who lost their life at some point and how all of those connect and make a story for her about what it was like to be from the South. Um, Jasmine is a writer who grew up a in parts of New Orleans and then also live in the rural area um, and so this is from a funeral she went to and she says on page 39 after Ross funeral I tapped Rhea's shoulder I opened my arms and hugged her her big expressive eyes were bloodshot and wandering I wondered what I would have wanted someone to say to me when my brother died anything beyond are you all right and are you okay I knew the answer to those questions I whispered into her ear he will always be your brother, and you will always be his sister. What I meant to say was this. You will always love him, and he will always love you. Even though he is not here, he was here, and no one can change that. No one can take that from you. If energy is neither created nor destroyed, and if your brother was here with his humor and his kindness and his hopes, doesn't that mean that he will exist somewhere, even if it is not here? Doesn't it? Because in order to get out of bed this morning, this is what I had to believe about my brother, Rhea. But I didn't know how to say that. This next portion of reading is going to come from Bell Hooks, All About Love. Um, In a chapter about community, she ironically talks about yourself and how you essentially have to make community out of yourself in order to be able to accept love and to be in love of any kind, whether it's paternal, whether it's um, an erotic love, whether it's even friendship. And I think it's like that for me a lot because after my brother died, I did fill my life with people. Um, I thought it was so many people so that I could always have something to do, somewhere to go, somebody to talk to, so I didn't have to be alone and still with myself. And so I'm going to kind of jump around in these next two pages, but I'm going to start. We all long for love and community. It enhances life's joys, but many of us seek community solely to escape the fear of being alone. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone or can be with others without using them as a means of escape, we need to put the feelings of being afraid of loneliness to rest by embracing our solitude, by allowing divine spirits to reveal itself. The difficult road is the road of conversion, the conversion from loneliness to solitude. Instead of running away from our loneliness and trying to forget it or deny it, we have to protect it and turn it into fruitful solitude. Loneliness is painful. Solitude is peaceful. Loneliness makes us cling to others in desperation. Solitude allows us to respect others in their uniqueness and create community. When children are taught to enjoy quiet time, to be alone with their thoughts, they carry the skill into adulthood. Individuals, young and old, striving to overcome fears of being alone, 
often choose meditation practice as a way to embrace solitude. Learning how to sit in stillness and quiet can be the first step towards comfort and aloneness. Um, and so, like I said, it took a long time for me to be comfortable being alone or to be by myself or to meditate or to sit still. Um, and I went from a place where I was lonely. You know, I, I missed my best friend who was my brother who was gone um, physically on earth for forever. And I just didn't know how to accept the loneliness that was part of my life. Um, and I think on the other end, as a teacher, I've seen how black children struggle with solitude, how they struggle with still, because it is, it's the fear of the unknown and not a, a sense of peace. Um, and so even as a teacher, I work to bring meditation in that quiet space to my classroom. And I think that Bell Hooks just does a great job of explaining why accepting ourselves in solitude is important to the act of being in love and being in communion with other people. My name is Lindsay. Um, I am a Howard University graduate, a proud native ATLian, and I am a researcher, a bibliophile, a black woman. And today I'll be reading an excerpt from Dr. Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, along with a short poem, two short poems from Claudia Rankin's citizen and American lyric. I'll begin with Eloquent Rage. This excerpt is from a chapter entitled White Girl Tears. The election of Trump, a man who had admitted on tape to sexually assaulting women, women who were presumably white, suggests that 2016 is the moment white women ran squarely up against the limits of white lady tears as a form of political capital. White lady tears might seem not to be a big deal, but they are actually quite dangerous. When white women signal through their tears that they feel unsafe, misunderstood, or attacked, the whole world rises in their defense. The mythic nature of white female vulnerability compels protective impulses to arise in all men, regardless of race. I think here of the white girl rapper travesty that is Iggy Azalea. This Australian white girl built her career by mimicking the accent and cadence of black girls in Atlanta, Georgia. She was helped along incredible experiment and cultural appropriation by Atlanta rapper T.I. In late 2014, Iggy Azalea dismissed black female rapper Azalea Banks' claims that America appropriates black culture by engaging in what Banks called cultural smudging. In the midst of the racial uproars of 2014, the killing of Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and the refusal of the Ferguson, Missouri prosecutor to indict Officer Darren Wilson, Banks had putting off of black culture but not speaking out about black pain. When days later, Banks followed up in an interview about this longstanding problem of cultural appropriation, think jazz, rock and roll, blues, and blue-eyed soul, he dismissed Banks as a bully who had little success because of her attitude. Rap legend Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest stepped in to give Iggy a history lesson on Twitter. It was not long before rapper T.I. defended his protege, Iggy, by saying that many black people had a paranoid, all white people want to steal our shit mentality. Clearly, T.I.'s arguments are reductive and ludicrous. Black people have every right to be upset about the long history of cultural appropriation in this country. The fact that Iggy's career took off at a moment in hip-hop when black girls could barely find a record deal, Nicki Minaj being the exception, suggests that our fears and anger about white girls taking up space to which they are not entitled are well-founded. During these same years, we have endured everyone from Miley Cyrus to Taylor Swift to Katy Perry, parroting the sounds and idioms of hip-hop in their music while disrespecting black women in the process.
Katy Perry rocked cornrows where her front edges gelled down, a hairstyle that is undeniably specific to black women, in the music video for her song, This Is How We Do, while pursing her lips with her head cocked to the side to impersonate what she thinks attitudinal, edgy black girls look and sound like. Then there was a time Taylor Swift crawled between the legs of several black girls twerking in her video, Shake It Off. Let me also note that phrases like, this is how we do and shake it off are themselves black cultural sayings, indigenous to the hip hop generation. Miley Cyrus even infamously invited black women with huge posteriors on stage to twerk with her when she was trying to emerge from the good girl gloss of her old Disney character, Hannah Montana. Using the logic of white supremacy to her advantage, she figured that the closer she put her skinny, no ass having self to black women's thick and voluptuous bodies, the easier it would be for people to accept her as a sexually active, slightly vulgar grown woman. Black women's bodies became critical to this performance of grown womanhood because Miley knew, at least implicitly, that black women's bodies are all sexual and excessively vulgar. And this was everything she wanted to be. Of late, Cyrus says she has moved away from hip hop because as she told John Norris at Billboard, quote, it was too much Lamborghini, got my Rolex, got a girl on my cock. I am so not that, end quote. Now that hip hop had rescued her from the stultifying demands to perform pure, chaste, white, Southern femininity, she was ready to throw it out like a used up wash rag. Of course, hip hop had been misogynistic for more than three decades when Cyrus thought to use it to add an edge to her image. The ability to take on and peel off the parts of black culture that you like at will is exactly what is meant by the term white privilege. And while culture sharing is fine, white people have proven that they don't have a problem sharing. And while culture sharing is fine, white people have proven that they have a problem sharing. White people don't share. They take over. They colonize. They claim shit as their own and then accuse others of being territorial and retrograde for pointing out these aggressive borrowing practices that shape white culture. It's wrong to use black aesthetics, black cultural vernaculars and black dance in your videos without any citation or homage. Next, I'll be reading from Claudia Rankin's Citizen and American Merrick. When a woman you work with calls you by the name of another woman you work with, it is too much of a cliche not to laugh out loud with a friend beside you who says, oh no, she didn't. Still, in the end, so what? Who cares? She had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Yes, and in your mail, the apology to quote, our mistake. Apparently your own invisibility is the real problem causing her confusion. This is how the apparatus she propels you into begins to multiply its meaning. What did you say? At the end of a brief phone conversation, you tell the manager you are speaking with that you will come by his office to sign the form. When you arrive and announce yourself, he blurts out, I didn't know you were black. I didn't mean to say that, he then says. Aloud, you say. What, he asks. You didn't mean to say that aloud. Your transaction goes swiftly after that. The next poem is also from Claudia Rankin's citizen in American Merrick. You're rushing to meet a friend in a distant neighborhood of Santa Monica. This friend says as you walk toward her, you are late, you nappy-headed hoe. What did you say, you ask, though you have heard every word. This person has never before referred to you like this in your presence, never before code switched in this manner. What did you say? 
she doesn't perhaps physically cannot repeat what she has just said. Maybe the content of her statement is irrelevant. You know, the stereotype of black people time by employing what she perceives to be black people language. Maybe she's jealous of whoever kept you and wants to suggest you are nothing or everything to her. Maybe she wants to have a belated conversation about Don Imus and the women's basketball team he insulted with this language. You don't know. You don't know what she means. You don't know what response she expects from you, nor do you care. For all your previous understandings, suddenly incoherence feels violent. You both experience this cut, which she keeps insisting is a joke, a joke stuck in her throat. And like any other injury, you watch it rupture along its suddenly exposed suture. I chose this excerpt from Dr. Cooper's book from the chapter entitled White Girl Tears, because at a time when violence is so rampant, state violence is so consistent in our country, white people have found themselves in what they would call oppressed. They are feeling like their freedoms are being taken away. They are feeling as though they are being forced to do things that jeopardize their own individuality and their own autonomy. Um, oftentimes, this is a novel feeling for white people, one that they are presumably shocked to be experiencing, that oppression can occur in this country, but specifically and more pointedly that oppression can be occurring to them at the hands of a country that is supposed to be, has been built to and has consistently protected them. They feel that their freedoms are being infringed upon. This excerpt from Dr. Cooper's book speaks squarely to white women utilizing the violence of their tears and the violence of their colonization and appropriation to put themselves in cultures and to overtake cultures um, in a number of different ways. I thought that the excerpt was just really important and it speaks to, I think, a number of experiences where we can discuss the history of violence at the hands of white women in this country, both implicitly and explicitly. Their tears are often not seen as harmless to those of us whose communities have been ravaged by the result of these tears. Claudia Rankin's poems also speak very much to a similar form of violence and a similar form of insidiousness that occurs with sort of invisibility and hypervisibility of certain individuals. Um, the first excerpt speaks about how your invisibility is the problem in a scenario when someone calls you a different name and your lack of a reaction is what contributes to that invisibility and what contributes to that violence. And I think these pieces really have a strong conversation with each other particularly around what happens when a culture, what happens when uh, a people are so visible yet so made to be invisible. Um, and what happens when a culture 
is consistently being picked apart and picked at and the that culture and the gatekeepers of that culture are viewed as being complicit in the picking apart of that culture um, and particularly when white women are consistently viewed as fragile think you know cult of domesticity think uh, individuals who see white womanhood as peak womanhood um, I think that these two pieces are very important, um, especially at a time when, as I said, white people feel like their freedoms are being infringed upon right now. They feel like this country has shifted to no longer protecting them only because they can't go to IHOP and get their pancakes and they can't go to Great Clips and get their hair cut. They have to wear a mask and they feel like their freedoms are being infringed upon when people are literally dying from this disease and people have died from much, much worse in this country. White people are utilizing their tears. White women are utilizing their tears. Um, and this phrasing of Karens and the dangers that come along with that, I think are really important during a time like this. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Carmen, for having me on. I know you probably don't want to hear that, but thank you again. I appreciate it. And stay safe, everyone. Hi. Thank you, Carmen, um, for having me. Um, my name is Kathleen Antoine Abiala. Um, actually, I, I want to just say a little bit about I've known Carmen a long time. Um, and so um, it's a privilege to be on this um, this podcast with her and um, sort of see her work. So I, I really feel honored to, to be joining you. Um, but I am, in terms of who I am, I am a Black woman and I'm a Black woman of Haitian heritage. I was born here in the United States, but I, um, I make that distinction of being of Haitian heritage because it's an important part of my identity and how I see myself. Um, my view of the world. Um, I believe I'm addicted to liberation because of that, um, you know, recognizing the history of Haiti um, and the role that that history played in, in all of, you know, world history, right? And so um, that's a, a, an important part of my identity. I am, I consider myself a goddaughter of Toni Morrison. I, I consider her like kin, um, literary kin for sure. Um, because I love her and respect her work so much. And that's actually the person who I chose um, to be reading from, um, I'll be reading from her work. Um, I came to know Toni Morrison through, um, you know, my education. I probably first came across her work as an undergraduate um, at NYU, but I, there was no turning back. I mean, I, I literally just wanted to devour everything that she's ever written. Um, and I continue um, to, you know, um, really draw wisdom from her work. So I think um, in terms of thinking about what I wanted to share today or, or sort of revisit today, I was thinking about the ways in which her wisdom and her words and her brilliance still speak to me. Um, I'm an educator. Um, I've, you know, taught um, in New York City public schools. I now actually continue to work as an educator but in the context of um, 
educational equity. So really um, working uh, with a major university um, in New York City around this work. So um, yeah, that part is not as interesting to me as what we're hopefully going to um, be able to share and, and, and maybe even talk about a little bit today. So as I said, I chose Toni Morrison and I'm actually going to um, read just briefly from the preface of um, the Black Book. And so for those of us um, who are, I would say, I don't know, if you consider yourself a God child, the way I've, I've, I've you know, um, sort of self-proclaimed uh, God child of, of Mother Morrison, of Toni Morrison, um, that you know that she was an editor and um, she worked as a book editor for many years. She actually helped, um, you know, she was instrumental, I should say, in um, bringing, you know, the, the publishing of um, works by uh, uh, Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali, among others. And so, um, but one of the things that she did as an editor was she helped um, to uh, put together this book called The Black Book. I wanna say it came out in 1972, oh, 1974. Um, her Middleton A. Harris and Toni Morrison um, were the collectors that helped put together. So this book essentially is almost like an anthology, if you will. Um, and it's it's it literally has just all, anything you can imagine about black folks, um, but particularly black folks here in um, the United States. Um, and I wanna read from the preface because I think that it speaks to the way in which um, Morrison thought about blackness, black identity um, and the centrality of black identity to to what is America today, right? So, um, you know, right now in this context that we're in, um, this coronavirus, COVID-19 context, um, blackness is, or being in a black body, right, at this time is, is highlighted in ways that are, you know, um, not surprising to us, right? Those of us who are black and brown folks in this country, um, but it certainly highlights um, what it means to exist in this context. And she says, so I'm just gonna read um, the preface. She says, I am the black book between my top and my bottom, my right and my left. I hold what I've seen, what I've done and what I've thought. I am everything I've hated, labor without harvest, death without honor, life without land or law. I am a black woman holding a white child in her arms, singing to her own baby, lying unattended in the grass. I am all the ways I have failed. I am the black slave owner, the buyer of golden peacock bleach cream and Dr. Palmer's skin whitener. The, the self-hating player of the dozens. I am my own nigger joke. I am all the ways I survived. I am tongue mush, whole cake cooked on a hoe. I am 14 black jockeys winning the Kentucky Derby. I am the creator of hundreds of patented inventions. I am La Lafitte, the pirate. And Marie Laveau, I am Bessie Smith winning a roller skating contest. I am quilts and ironwork, fine carpentry and lace. I am the wars I fought, the gold I mined, the horses I broke, the trails I blazed. I am all the things I've ever seen. 
the New York Cau Caucasian uh, newspaper, the scarred back of Gordon the slave, the draft riots, darky tunes, merchants distorting my face to sell thread, soap, shoe polish, coconut. And I am all the things I've ever loved. Scuppernong wine, cool baptisms in silent water, dream books and number playing. I'm the sound of my own voice singing sangaree. I am ring shouts and blues, ragtime and gospels. I am mojo, voodoo, and gold earrings. I am not complete here. There is much more, but there is no more time and no more space. And I have journeys to take, ships to name and cruise. And that's Toni Morrison in she wrote the preface to the black book um and i just think that those last lines which i'll read again i am not complete here there is much more but there is no more time and no more space i have journeys to take ships to name and cruise and i and i i repeat those lines because i think that you know tony marson at this point 1974 i think she had just finished writing the bluest eye which is her first right it's her debut novel um, that tells the story of Pecola Breedlove, who she centers, right? And, and she talks about, I'm sure many of us have seen, where she speaks about her intention around centering the story of a young Black girl. Um, but when she says she has journeys to take, I, I believe in a sense, for me, it's she's foreshadowing, in a sense, the journeys that we will take with her, right? And we all know the career that follows, right? So this is in 1974, and we know that I want to say within 10 years, she's winning the Nobel Prize, right, for, for Beloved, um, which she wrote, you know, about 10 years later. And so there's a journey that we go on, right, um, with Toni Morrison. But what I hear in this, in this preface is the ways in which she's so crystal clear about the, the complexity and the richness and the depth of the Black experience, but not apologetic in any way, right, but accepting and open um, to to that, to, to what that means and what that is, but also the ways in which all of her works have taken us into those depths. And I, I think that's why I chose her because for me, not that I need to explain to anyone or recount right her brilliance, I think we all know it, but the way that we encounter Toni Morrison, every ind individual person who reads her work encounters it differently. And for me, my encountering of her work was the ways in which she was, ex for me, opening up and exposing, you know, all that is what it is to be black, all that it is to live in a black body, to, to be in this context, to live in this world, right? Um, and she does it in such beautiful and breathtaking ways. Um, and so the things that I've thought about most recently, um, and I will just say very briefly that, you know, I have experienced personal, very personal loss um, during this COVID-19 time, um, <clears throat> the first, um, and, and perhaps, you know, the most devastating of all is like the loss of my mother, um, which in a couple of days will be about two months from now, uh, two months ago, rather. Um, and and so and I've also there's been other friends and loved ones. And I've been really um, using this time to think about my loss, but also think about what is what is all of this teaching me? Right. Um, as uh, many of us know that when you are grieving, you're trying to make sense of everything. Um, and so the question that I asked myself most recently was, 
what's the wisdom that Toni Morrison is offering, right? Like, what is her work? I've read most of her work um, and I need to return to many works. Um, and so I thought about places where I felt that she's spoken to us in ways. Um, and, and I'm just gonna read from a couple of, a couple more passages, but one of them actually, um, she, re she readdresses this passage that came from Beloved, which we all know um, um, is what, her work that, that got her the, um, the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, but this is actually, um, it's a passage that I think often is referred to as the clearing or the passage that takes place in the clearing. And as we know, baby Suggs is the matriarch. Um, she is the mother figure in Beloved. She is um, the person who really helps Sefa, um, you know, once she's, she's able to get through the, the harrowing experience that she went through. And um, so it says, so she says this part of it, the sermon the baby sug delivers in the clearing woods. Here, she said, in this place, we, flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in, the, in grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands, love them. Raise them up, kiss them, touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face, because they don't love that either. You got to love it, you. And no, they ain't in no they they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder, out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put into it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavens instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. And oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck, put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it, and hold it up. And all, all your inside parts that they just as soon slop for hogs, you got to love them. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it. And the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than lungs, that have yet to draw free air, more than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts. Hear me now, love your heart, for this is the prize. And I'm gonna just stop there. Um, and she goes on a bit um, more, but that particular passage, um, again, I think just asking myself, about what Mother Marson is teaching us or is teaching me, I, you know, I'll speak for myself in this moment. And I think that I, I felt drawn back to that, the passage in the clearing, right? Um, for a couple of reasons, um, because, because to be black and to be in a black body right now feels so, it feels there's something about it that feels scary, right? Um, beyond, you know, data and numbers, it's like the real experience, right? And what I've what I know has happened within my own family and the family of others, um, of other black folks. Um, and so 
I feel as if there's so much there's there's a there's a you know in it, when she's saying this word and you know as the passage continues in the, in beloved you know that at one point you know people go from crying to laughing right and there's all, all these emotions right because you know if you've seen the film right that that, that depicts the same scene um, in beloved. It's it's really a, a a really it's for me one of the most beautiful scenes because it's rich and lush and green, and you know again Baby Suggs is this spiritual leader and she's she's really calling on um on on them to to love themselves and I think that 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 message that wisdom is still true right um that what's described what Morrison sort of describes and recreates for us in that passage is what th this um what was known as hush harbors, right? So that um, enslaved Africans um, essentially found themselves, um, had to figure out ways, they had modes of survival. The hush harbor was one of them. It was the, one of the ways that we could, you know, take away, you know, take time away from, you know, the plantation horrors and gather together to pray, to make plans and all of that. And, and there's, a, there's something in me that says that hush harbors are necessary in this time right, that there's so much happening and it's a chaotic time. And for many of us, um, you know, I'm hearing conversations, you know, in different platforms and, and talking to different folks about how people feel living here in the United States and feeling like this country is failing us. You know, the policies that are obviously not serving us. Um, and so where do we go to, 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 to find restoration, um, to find fellowship, connection, right? And I, and I look at the ways that we create these things for ourselves. So for me, that clearing passage speaks to a deep wisdom and a deep understanding that Norrison had about our ways of survival, right? Um, and, and wanting to, to, and making that an essential aspect of this, you know, the story of Beloved, because it is like a story that is, there's so much tragedy in it, right? <clears throat> um, but at the same time, that to have that moment and to, to really highlight that moment in the text where there is restoration and there's hope um, um, and the ways in which we do that. And we, and that is a tradition of ours. And I, and I find us in, in new ways actually doing that, right? I find that we are finding um, new ways to create um, hush harbors, if you will. I think that's something we need to continue to put into operation in our lives is, you know, to create those sacred spaces. So I wanted to, um, lift that up because I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, and then the last um, one that I just wanted to briefly share. Um, so of all of the novels by Toni Morrison, my favorite is Song of Solomon. Um, I read it as an undergrad. Um, it like, it literally changed like, like I, so I had read Beloved and I was like, yeah, cause Beloved is hard, right? Everybody, you know, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but I know I struggled with Beloved. Um, and and I loved it. It was amazing, you know. Um, but when I read Song of Solomon, I, for me, I understood the ways in which Marcin was just like, she just went into the Black psyche in ways that I had never seen other writers do. And that for me was just like, it just blew my world, you know, like it blew my mind and it just opened up a world, um, a, you know, a continued, you know, um, deep, deep um, admiration for her work. Um, and so um, in Song of Solomon, we know it tells a story of, of it's really just telling the story of this family, a you know, sort of like a, a 
through the the character of Milkman and and all of his family members that are very complex um, as we are as, as black folks, right? We are complex. Um, but one of the things again that, um, and, and this is I think part of why I love Morrison is that she, she, she allows us to go on these journeys with her and she takes us in these places in her work um, that speak to the ways in which we um, again have continued to be resilient. So again, I think what, what drew me to Song of Solomon was remembering, I remember that there was a passage, it was a portion of the text that spoke about, you know, the idea of flying and escaping. And I've been thinking about this notion of like Afrofuturism and, you know, it's something that certainly for the last few years, we've been talking a lot about, not exclusively since in the last few years, but, you know, there's um, certainly a rich history in our literature around Afrofuturism for sure. But, you know, with the coming, with, um, you know, Black Panther, like folks revisiting, you know, this idea and, 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 and thinking about it. But what brought me again in this context that we're in now to this text was thinking, I just was remembering, I was remembering the, the, the image of flight. And if I'm honest, you know, my own desire to not be here, um, you know, full disclosure or just a little transparency in my own personal life. So my husband lives in Benin, West Africa, and um, we've been married for two years, but we, we've, our relationship has been, you know, we go back and forth between both places. Um, and he was here in, Febu in February and he went back because he um, is an artist and, you know, he does a lot of work. Um, he runs a cultural center there. And so he's got his, his, his work that he does there. And um, I, I mean, if the airports weren't closed um, in Benin, I'd be there now. Right. And so this desire, my own personal desire to just sort of escape this context and, and this reality, or at least be not in the United States, got me thinking about Song of Solomon in this passage. And so um, Milkman is sort of on this journey. I just want to give a little bit of context. So Milkman is the main character um, in the text, and he is, um, you know, on this journey of self-discovery. Um, he's sort of a person who's like, you know, has arrested development, one could say. And um, in the search for understanding, um, he's really trying to figure out his family lineage um, that he doesn't know a lot about. And he encounters um, some folks in Virginia. And so he's having a conversation with a character named Susan. Um, this is toward the end of the text, just in the last maybe chapter um, or two. And, um, and so the woman is talking to him about relatives and um, she's talking about her father's name and, and he asked her, why did you call Solomon a flying African? Oh, that's just some old folks lie they tell around here. Some of those Africans they brought over here as slaves could fly. A lot of them flew back to Africa. The one around here who did, his name was Solomon or Shalimar. I never knew which, which was right. He had a slew of children all over the place. You may have noticed that everybody around here claims kin to him. Must be over 40 families spread in these hills, calling themselves Solomon something or other. I guess he must have been hot stuff, she laughed. But anyway, hot stuff or not, he disappeared and left everybody. Wife, everybody, including some 21 children. And they say they all saw him go. The wife saw him and the children saw him. And they were all working in the fields. And they used to try to grow cotton here. Can you imagine in these hills? But cotton was king then. Everybody grew it until the land went bad. It was cotton even when I was, when I was a girl. 
Well, back to this Jake boy. He was supposed to be one of Solomon's original 21. All boys and all of them with the same mother. Jake was the baby. The baby and the wife were right next to him when he flew off. When you say flew off, you mean he ran away, don't you? Escaped. No, I mean flew. Oh, it's just foolishness, you know. But according to the story, he wasn't running away. He was flying. He flew. You know, like a bird. Just up in the fields, one day ran up some hill, spun around a couple of times, and he was lifted up in the air. Went right back, <clears throat> right on back to whatever it was he came from. There's a big double-headed rock over the valley named for him. It like killed it like killed the woman, the wife. I guess you could say wife. Anyway, she's supposed to have screamed out loud for days. And there was a ravine near where they called uh, Rena's Gulch. And sometimes you can hear this funny sound by by it that the wind makes. Some people say it's it's the wife, Solomon's wife, crying. Her name was Rena. They said she screamed and screamed and lost her mind completely. You don't hear about women like that anymore, but there used to be more, the kind of women like that. Um, um, that of the kind of woman who couldn't live without a, without, without a particular man. And I'm gonna stop there. And then um, just later on in the text, um, you know, Milkman um, has reunited with his aunt, Pilot, um, and, you know, they have a, a burial that they, you know, that they need to, burial rites that they need to perform, and they do it. Um, and unfortunately, Pilot is shot <clears throat> mistakenly by his um, friend, now enemy, Guitar. And, um, and she's, so Pilot is dying in his arms, and she says, sing sing a little something for me. And, and it says Milkman knew no songs and had no singing voice that anybody wanted to hear, but he could, couldn't ignore the urgency in her voice. Speaking the words without the least bit of a tune, he sung for the lady, sugar, don't leave me here. Cotton balls to choke me. Sugar girl, don't leave me here. Buckra's arms to yoke me. The blood was not pulsing out any longer. There was something black and bubbly in her mouth. Yet when she moved her head a little to gaze at something behind his shoulder. It took a while for him to realize that she was dead. And when he did, he could not stop the worn old words from com coming louder and louder as though the sheer volume would wake her. He only worked the, woke the birds who shuddered off in the air. Milkman laid her head down on the rock. Two of the birds circled round. One dived into the new grave and scooped something shiny in its beak before it flew off. Now he knew why he loved her so without her, without ever leaving the ground, she could fly. And I'm gonna stop there. Um, and for me, I, it just, you know, I wanted, I wanted to return to that passage because it, I felt like in some, in so many ways, you know, that Toni Morrison is speaking to us about liberation. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking about the ways in which in very tangible ways, in very real ways, many of us are, are asking ourselves, what does our liberation look like? Um, what does it mean to be liberated in a country like you know, this one? Um, like I said, I've been hearing people talk about a lot of, you know, the folks, some folks are thinking about in the same way that you know, this, this, this story um, of you know, one of Milkman's relatives 
of, of Solomon, right, taking off um, and that he was able to fly. And that's, so that ho the whole notion of like, you know, enslaved Africans or, or um, African-Americans and that, that's a, that folktale of like flight um, is not unique to Toni Morrison's work. Um, I want to say Virginia Hamilton, the children's book um, writer and, and illustrator has also she has a book, you know, When We Could Fly. It's actually the title of the book, I believe. Um, but that idea of being able to fly, right? Um, and that liberation in so many ways, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of think about this scene, these scenes, um, you know, so you have Solomon who, uh, you know, in the, in the telling of it could literally fly. And then you have Pilate and he says, you know, she could fly, but her feet were still on the ground, right? And so that the flight, the, the sense of liberation is not just for, so where we find ourselves physically, right? But also thinking about where, what, where do we, how do we experience a sense of liberation within ourselves and in our spirit, um, within the ways that we live our lives? Pilot, for me, is my favorite character in Song of Solomon um, because she is so unique. You know, she's the character that has no belly button. So, right, there's like a lot there. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I love this particular novel. But, um, you know, she stands out, of course, as being one that is that is liberated, that she's not, um, that she's not attached to the things of this world and of this existence. Um, for all intents and purposes, mo most of us would think that Pilot was a crazy woman. She lived in a raggedy house, but she, of all the characters, if you're familiar with Solomon of Solomon, is the most, she is the most free. She really is free. She embodies that in the way that she lives and the way um, she knows herself, right? Um, and so again, going back to this, this notion of identity, um, um, and why that's so important um, uh, in terms of our ability to feel um, our own and experience our own freedom. So um, those are my choices for today. Um, I hope I didn't go on for too long, um, but I don't know about y'all, but I think I could sit and just read from Morrison all day because she's such a, um, we are so privileged to have known her i mean when she passed this um past august um you know it i think for like many of us i felt that very personally um it was a real it felt like a real personal loss but um but i feel so grateful for her for her work for her writing for the legacy she's left she's left us um and i and i and i guess i'm really more deeply appreciative of it now more than ever because i'm realizing the ways in which um her work is not just right. Like, like her, her work speaks so many truths that I'm able to, the fact that I, in this context and, and considering all that's been going on, that I'm still pulling truth and, 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 and wisdom from her writing um, for me is, is a great gift. And, and so for that, I'm, I'm extremely grateful. You know, as mentioned in episode one, I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. And I did not attend a boarding school or a fancy private school. I went to public school. And although there is a lot of stigma about the public school system, um, and granted, we don't have the best institutional system in this country, I grew up having educators and people at school, faculty who cared about me. And I felt loved. I want to say nine out of 10 times in the spaces that I've been in. And I, of course, transferred schools and found my way and found my foot. But especially going to high school, 
at Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn, New York. That's where I kind of made my mark and I felt encouraged to be a writer because I had black educators who taught me black literature and I was given a picture book of black authors and I was told that I needed to study and read black authors if I wanted to be one and that changed my life and I'm so excited that I was able to spend time years later I have received my bachelor's degree. I am finishing up my master's right now. And to have some folks on this podcast who I've known over time and in some cases have taught me. I think that I'm typically taught by many people around me, but I mean in the sense of was once my teacher and grounded me in the knowledge of black literature and taught me what it meant to liberate myself through education and to fight for liberation for our community and to love myself, my blackness, to love where I come from. I went to school where I want to say maybe 98 percentage of students were immigrants. We were coming from all over the Caribbean and maybe parts of Africa, you know, don't hold me to that statistic. But a lot of us spoke many different languages. Our parents sometimes didn't speak English. And so I was coming out of that tradition of first generation students who were determined to make it. Now that wasn't always the case, but I'm fortunate to be at a spot right now where I can hold conversation in something that matters and use this time to make space to say that we are here and to share this space with people who have taught me. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you follow us on Instagram at what you read in the series. And of course, thank you to everyone who lent their voice on this podcast today. It means something to me. Thank you for your vulnerability for those of you who opened up, who spoke to us about grief, who spoke to us about change, who actively believe in it and seek after it in their own lives and are here today to share with us literature so that we know that we're not alone, that it has been written before us. And please, everyone, stay safe. Thank you always. Bye, Connie.